Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everyone. Hi, I'm Kim Skorupski. I'm looking at Dr. Danielle Khashoggi, or <laughs> the, that, that's the Farsi version of it, Danielle Khashoggi, but Daniel Khashabi, right? In the, the, the American right. version of it, the American pronunciation that's, of it. That's right. Yes, you nailed both versions. Oh my goodness, you're you're too generous. Well, um, Dr. Daniel is an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science here at the Johns Hopkins Whiting School of Engineering. And Daniel has the honor of being the first faculty member from the School of Engineering on the podcast. In fact, I've had we've had no one wow. outside of I think medicine. We've had a couple of people from the public health. And I think illegal, we've had, a, oh, yeah, attorney uh, Natterman on, but you're the first computer science engineer who is on the podcast. And maybe people thinking are wondering, like, they're listening, they're wondering, well, then what is what is this Daniel Kashabi and why is he on the podcast? Well, drum roll, I was just talking to Daniel that we, in my space, um, learned about Chat GPT, spoiler alert, Chat GPT, only a handful of months ago. And we got a great email from Hopkins talking about the implications and applications of Chat GPT. And there sat Daniel, our own Hopkins expert. So I said, Daniel, Dr. Kashabi, would you would you be in the podcast, please? Do like a, a chat GPT for dummies. Someone like me who's probably knows the least amount of this maybe then compared to any of the listeners. So just before I shut up, I'm going to tell you that when you research Dr. Kashabi, and I'll give you email about how you can get in touch with him later on, you'll see words like, now these are like English words, but I have no idea what they mean. Language models, large language models, autoregressive language models, text generation. I understood that. I understood text generation, Daniel. Knowledge representation computational linguistics, look-ahead heuristics, and all this nomenclature is completely foreign to me. And I think maybe a lot of faculty affairs, faculty development people. So Daniel, you ought need to throw down some knowledge on us because I know you have so much to teach us. So please welcome to the podcast. So you take it away for us. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me. It's a great honor to be here and be the first person from the Whiting School. And thanks for the overly generous introduction. Yeah, I guess maybe I can just piggyback on, on the first point about uh, on, on how these models work, uh, what's underlying these in just some high-level terms. Yeah, so I think if I want to summarize these, uh, and, and really we are going to stick to the big picture, uh, underlying these are basically a bunch of large statistical models that we have trained them on massive amounts of data to pick up some patterns that tell us something about the nature of language, reasoning, and conversation, and so on. Uh, basically, think of them. Uh, well, in, in most of the uh, fields these days, uh, we are used to building statistical models that are super simple, linear models. But then think of neural networks as basically stacking of many, many, many of these linear layers on top of each other. Right, so think of uh, think of GPTs as basically uh, a, a million repetitions of linear models on top of each other. Right, it would become an ex extremely large model, and because it's extremely large, it has the capacity to absorb a lot of patterns that you would feed it uh, if you train it on massive amounts of data. 
Now let's talk about the training. How does it actually train? Can I, can I just, can I help? Can I not help, but can I ask for your help? And the, right away when you started, when you said stacking, I went back to my statistics days when I was doing a lot of factor analysis and we talk about orthogonal or oblique rotations of data. We're trying to maximize the fit. If you have like an index or a hundred items and you want to see which ones hang together, they have these, the same thing, the correlations get stacked and then the rotations find those best fitting under the different factors. Is that something close to what's happening or am I a little off? Indirectly, that is probably happening uh, underneath this uh, this large model. Essentially, what we were uh, what we used to do in kind of old statistical learning literature, we would find these clusters of patterns in the data, uh, like you mentioned, finding orthogonal uh, basis functions and so on that describe all those uh, diverging uh, dimensions that describe the data. Uh, in a way, we have moved from that paradigm. Instead of finding those uh, patterns in the data ourselves manually, we just create an extremely large model that, and let the model decide what kind of patterns it's supposed to pick up. Right? Uh, in the past, it's, so in the past, in statistical literature, there was this idea that if you have an extremely large model, it's going to overfit the data. Like it's going to fit all the nuances, all the outliers, and so on. So it's not going to be a good predictor, good predictor of the data. And, and we had some theoretical intuitions for doing this. We used, we used to obsess over regularization because uh, we were always worried about overfitting. But then everything started to shift a couple of years ago when we realized that actually even large models, uh, they don't really overfit as bad as we thought they would. Uh, this was a big turning point. Uh, we didn't have uh, any theoretical justification for it. In fact, it kind of went against theory. Uh, but then things it starts to look better and better empirically. And then that's how you know we started to see that major drift between theory and empirical observations. And since then, I'm not sure if we still have any good theoretical explanations as to why these massive, massive models they just work pretty well, and they don't overfit as much as uh, we thought they would. Another factor that I think is playing an important role is that we are not just increasing the size of the model. We are also increasing the scale of the data. Uh, so in the past, maybe 10 years ago, it, we used to use a lot of small annotated data sets. But now we have a lot more data, right? So we realized that we can crowdsource data sets. We can scale up the annotations. So that was also a big breakthrough that we realized that uh, data annotation was not as big of a bottleneck as it used to be. And then, you know, scaling data and model size altogether uh, sounds it was basically a perfect match, right? Uh, I would say I would say toward the end of my PhD, maybe in 2015, this was really the peak of this paradigm of uh, scaling models and scaling annotated data. But then something something else happened back then in maybe in 16, 7, 2016 and 17 in NLP where we realized that we we can uh, we can actually get a lot even better results if instead of just using labeled data, we can pre-train these models on lots of kind of cheap data, unlabeled data. Like I can just go to Wikipedia and build a model that learns uh, how to predict the next word in a sentence. 
And all of a sudden, this model is really, really good in just understanding something about the structure of the language. You know, it, it's a basically a very mundane way of training your model. You essentially, you train it to uh, predict the next word or the missing word or the next sentence. But you're doing this process over uh, a lot of data, essentially web scale data, and you're also creating models that are that have billions of parameters. And this model, all of a sudden, since it is just trained on essentially a chief data, right? I don't need to annotate that data. Wikipedia exists by itself out there. I don't have to pay for it. It's just there. Uh, the only thing that we had to pay for was just the compute cost for pre-training. Pre I, I call it pre-training because it is, in a sense, it's the stage before fine-tuning on your labeled data. And this was really the big boom in 2018 and 19 in NLP. Uh, we saw that you can pre-train your models on Wikipedia scale data sets and the numbers continue to get better and better. And it kind of took off after that. You'll be, Google had, uh, well, actually Allen Institute had the first instance of this kind. Uh, their model was in the order of, I don't know, maybe like 50 million parameters. But then Google released another model that has 300 million parameters. And then Google released another series of papers in 2019 that had up to 11 billion parameters. And then OpenAI, you know, it basically it became a, an arms race. OpenAI's GPT-3 was uh, the last series of large models that was released in 2021, which had 175 billion parameters. That's kind of where we are. So, I so can I can I interrupt yeah. just a pause right right here because my I'm smelling smoke and I think it's my brain is just like frying <laughs> up here. I'm trying to process this. So, and you say NLP is that natural language programming? Oh yes, I should have defined it. Apologies. NLP stands for natural language processing. Processing. Okay. That All right. that's the field that I mostly associate with. Natural language processing, and so. Of course, a bunch of things pop into my head because I'm immediately going to the clinical application of in academic medicine, a lot of clinicians seeing patients and the electronic health, the EHP, the, the data that we use, Epic here, all those data. When you're talking about 175 billion parameters, that whole idea of abundant data can you, and this is not, I know it's something you look at, can you see the jump between going, using the the learning from NLP into an EPIC EHP program and pulling all those abundant data and also looking for patterns? Because you said you let your models pick up the patterns for language. Do right. you have any sense, and there's somebody out there probably going, yes, or yes, we do that. Kim, how come you don't know that? But the same thing, allowing those data sets throughout the world in a in a healthcare setting, letting a model find those data in the best pattern to predict diseases. Is there is that making sense that that application of this this methodology has application in, in a different way? I think there's a lot of room for such applications, uh, but we should be careful to not over expect uh, from these models and not over trust them. Mm. And let me let me let me elaborate on that. Uh, so these models are 
quite good in seeing a lot of data, memorizing important patterns, kind of connecting them. Think of them more like a well-read assistant that has read millions of papers, right? And as soon as you ask them, do you remember the paper that has done this? They can quickly remember it for you, right? So they're really good in retrieving these information and kind of connecting them together. And they're, they're, the way these, they associate these information is not necessarily verbatim. Like you can, let's say you want to, let's say you're looking for a case study on a particular um, disease or a condition. And, and then maybe, maybe that condition by itself doesn't exist, but there might be similar conditions that are relevant to that, right? So these models can be quite good in finding those kind of precedents and allowing you to access information very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I know that this is quite helpful for, uh, for any sort of uh, scientific endeavor, given that, for example, I think just in the case of medicine, I think that a number of the papers that are published on a daily basis so much that it's kind of impossible for any expert to just keep track of everything, right? So right. we need that kind of assistance to help us catch up and uh, get a better understanding of what is happening out there in the science and development world. So they're really good assistants, I would say. On the other hand, um, I think I think the uh, so even though these models are good in kind of superimposing existing patterns, uh, if they, they they're not necessarily better in just inventing new things mm-hmm. and really moving the needle to the next step. So I think. The genius of those, you know, these innovative individuals is that some, they are always able to push the envelope to the horizons that didn't exist before, right? So the, I guess the obvious case is that case is uh, Einstein's relativity theory. Uh, well, some, some, maybe some of the ideas back then existed that uh, there could be some connections between light and waves and energy. But then he he truly came up with a novel combination of all of the ideas that kind of existed back then, right? So would we expect the similar behavior from language models or multimodal models that are trained similarly? I I probably I would I would bet against it. I think these models are good in uh, synthesizing synthesizing patterns that are not too far from the data. I would not bet bet on them kind of moving the science uh, forward. I think they would be it would be a perfect combination if you have these models in the loop of kind of assistance to humans, that would be great. I, I think I think it would be a big danger to over rely on yeah. what they offer to us. Daniel, I, I love this. So can let's stay on the positive um the 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 benefits of chat GPT right now. And I want to continue this line that you talked about the fact that Currently, these current models think of them as assistants. When we would say to ourselves, "Oh darn, you know, I'm, I'm putting a new paper together. What was that paper I wrote three years ago that talked about blah right. blah blah? Or what was that paper that came out of Stanford last year? You know, uh, Kashabi at all? So a, a good assistant at the elbow who can say, "Oh yeah, got it, got it, got it." Synthesizing patterns, and you said. But not necessarily, we're not, it's not thinking. It's almost, I'm getting, it's randomly, randomly, kind of randomly coming up with the next logical um, text chain. So I, let me, let me just kind of talk this out one, one for 
tolerate me please for 20 more seconds. So if it's, um, I'm trying to get around the distinction between it's not thinking for itself, not creating a new, rather pulling and in some kind of logical format for patterns, it's putting words out there. Because my two trains of thought are here, again, as a clinician thinking, gosh, if I have all these electronic notes and records that I have dictated and typed, and I can teach my personal chat GPT to go into, say, just my files in my disease condition. I, I work in rheumatology, for example, and, and I it's going to start to recognize, oh, looking through these notes, this is the next note you're going to probably want to enter, or it looks like this is the diagnosis and this is the treatment because based on all your 20 years of it being in this space, we've been able to look for these patterns, synthesize these patterns. So I'm seeing an application that could save time because our clinicians, that's the thing exactly. that they lack the most is time. But exactly. you're cautioning us, be careful. We're not at the Star Trek thing where someone's going to stand in a cube and the commer- and the machine's going to go, and then it's going to think for us. We still need the human thinking. Is that right or close to being right? Absolutely. I think that was a great summary. I completely agree with that application or similar applications. Um, I would I would actually broadly frame the application that you're thinking. Maybe I'm going to abstract over that a little bit. Uh, I would uh, I would call that kind of what you call it is intelligence augmentation. Uh, we are augmenting human cognitive abilities by building them assistance that facilitate their 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 life on whatever that they're doing. I guess that could. Uh, Example is calculator. We don't need to do calculations ourselves anymore. We use calculators. Um, um, and you know, and, and the good thing about calculators is that if you don't, well, the, well, we usually trust our calculators, but in case you had a calculator that you didn't trust, you could verify it, right? You could, depending on what you do, you can always factor things out and verify. So verifiability is a big part of this. And I think it is it is quite important for all the intelligence augmentation applications to have human in the loop for verification because often these systems are kind of detached for the overall utility that a human wants to accomplish. Um, for example, depending on what uh, what is the what is the purpose of the underlying calculation for my calculator, the cost of mistake might differ depending on where I want to use the numbers, right? So uh, is this the, is, is for example, if I make, let's say, just half a precision mistake, uh, in some application, my cost lies, in some other applications, it wouldn't matter, right? So the utility makes a big difference. Uh, same thing also goes to medical applications, like you suggested, uh, is this mistake? Could there be a mistake that could be life-threatening thre- life to, to Kimberly or not? Mm-hmm. So I think, utility is a big part that is missing from these models. I I love this track because you're making me think garbage in, garbage out. If I want to have this intelligence augmentation and say, again, I'm staying on the micro level now because my brain can't go macro, but on the micro level, if if I have this intelligence augmentor, concierge, chat GP concierge at my, at Kim's shoulder, and if this, if I'm asking it to identify patterns in my clinical notes, but my clinical notes are 
cuckoo crazy pants and they're wrong. And yeah. I'm I'm coming up with wrong diagnoses or treatment or prevention or cure or what it, or care plans. And I'm insisting, come on, help me. It's it, it's gonna come up with the wrong answer to save me time and effort because I put garbage in. So that's, that's right. kind of the other thing that makes me think, again, reminding us it's not an intelligent, it's not thinking rationally, it's using existing data. So if we you had trained um all these, you know, these models on um some nonsense platform. So you didn't use Wikipedia, you use Goofypedia or goofiness. It it may have come up with a finding goofy patterns, right? So it's the garbage <laughs> in, garbage out, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's certainly one of the key failure modes. If if all that if all the assumptions or suppositions that you're providing to the systems are wrong, the system's also gonna give you uh, garbage. Uh, there are a couple of other failure modes too. For example, if Kimberly Kimberly's uh, case is a rare case, uh, the model might just give you some recommendations that doesn't make sense. Uh, maybe it looks like, a, you know, on the surface, maybe it looks like a recommendation, but uh, if an expert inspects it, they would realize that it doesn't make sense. And uh, in a way, the, the, the one big difficulty here is that we don't have a good mechanism to check whether a given generation is based on what the model, we don't, we don't, the models don't know when they don't, when they know and they don't know. Um uh, right, because they're not they're not thinking, they don't have the real world, they're not the humans. So right. So this is this kind of gets me to I'm so excited talking to you, Daniel Kashabi. You're so smart. <laughs> I'm learning so much. Okay, this is what gets me to the whole I still want to stay in the positives because you know what is this bringing to us? And before we go to the negative and the fears that are in like in my space, the fears that I hear and we all all read about is um is that it, this dumbing down because you gave a great example of oh they invented these calculators and now these dagnab kids are never going to be able to do math. And boy, oh boy, you know, they everybody's got a cell phone now and nobody knows anybody's phone number. Truth. I don't know anybody's phone numbers anymore. They look kind of familiar, <laughs> crazy, but I, I can't get to friends' houses I've known for years without my phone and my GPS because I zone That's out right. when I'm driving. Yeah. It's absurd. So part of that is it just, again, I guess I have kind of slid into the something, something dark side about chat GPT because we talk about it's not thinking, but if the human being is not thinking anymore and the models don't think we're back to where this, the movie idiocracy, right? That this is kind of like, are we, are we going to put ourselves backwards? Because we're like, well, I don't have to think about that anymore. My, my GPS has taken me there as I'm driving into a, <laughs> a ravine. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I think I do think that's um I do think that our progress there there is definitely a jump in in terms of this part of the technology. But I think the idea that we are solving the whole intelligence and humans don't need to think about it, I think that kind of sounds overblown. Uh we we still need to do a, quite a bit of work. Maybe we will do less work. I think that's only good news. Uh, there are also some bad news there that maybe we should keep it for later. 
Yeah, I, I because now I'm, I'm kind of going back to the whole thing of it's not thinking. Chat GP doesn't think for us because if you a lot of people know like the fun way to do this is to you you ask it to write a poem, a birthday poem for my daughter in iambic pentameter, and they'll set to uh, the lyrics of a you know Eminem song. It, that kind of it will do it. I mean, my friend was staying with me. She showed me the birthday greeting poem that she had asked chat GPT to generate. And it was amazing. So we, we know that makes you think so. But remember, think makes me think it's not thinking. It is just so adept at patterns and pulling and understanding what the request is to know, to go to what is iambic pentameter? What is, who is Eminem? What is a happy birthday greeting? What is a poem? But just the the magnificence of it actually comes up with something that makes sense instantaneously. I mean, you can, that's what it can't. I can't help but think of. Oh my gosh, the incredible applications of this tool are mind boggling to me. Right, I I, I agree with that. Uh, it is quite uh, impressive how how incredible these models are in combining or superimposing various patterns. Oftentimes, uh, so there's quite a bit of research in understanding what are the limits of the creative behavior that these models show. Certainly, like like you mentioned, poetry, that is quite impressive how these models are able to just combine various concepts and write poetry on them, to them. Uh, there is still a little bit of understanding that needs to be done there to better understand what are the limits of this uh, creativity, I think. What's clear by now is that there's no one type of creativity. It's possible that there's a, there's maybe a spectrum of creativity that you know maybe these models have uh, have gained the ability to capture one aspect. Maybe over time, with more and more scaling, they're going to become more creative in certain ways. But is it going to capture all sorts of creativities that humans possess? I think that that's really one of the big unknowns here. One, one, one thing that I'll just add here, since you mentioned a couple of times, um, I think we haven't really defined what thinking is. Uh, you mentioned that these models are not thinking. Uh, I know that there are a lot of opinions on this. Uh, there's one camp that uh, they view thinking or consciousness uh, as, as a sacred notions that are so human-like. I'm personally not in that camp. Uh, to me, uh, uh, we are just uh, computational organisms working based on some biological units. Uh, we happen to call our way of decision-making as thinking. To me, ChatGPT is also another organism. It happens to be based on different substrates, different computational substrates. Let's call it transistors. Uh, so they happen to do a slightly different way of thinking. Uh, I would still call that their thinking. Uh, in any future, who knows? Maybe we can actually have different substrates for these computational tools. There might be quantum uh, GPTs, or maybe even biological uh, GPTs. You know, I think that that's. I don't think that these are too far. Wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> computational organisms. What did you just say? What was the term you just said? But it, it's possible that, uh, to, to, let me just elaborate on that. It's possible that we, so actually let's not go to biology, but for now, it, there is quite a bit of research on building analog computers, 
which are very different from the current technology of computers that are digital, right? Everything is zeros and one. Uh-huh. And analog, analog computers, uh, in, in nature, a lot of things are analog. For example, the, you know, the, you know, the chemicals in your cells going up and down or the neurons firing in your brain, everything's analog. And another example of this analog computers is photons, the light, right? The intensity of light is an analog notion. And um, in nature, you can do a lot of computations quite efficiently um, and cheaply. Uh, and, and, and you know, it, it, this has been really one of the uh, several decade question of how can we build computers with other forces in nature, such as analog, uh, analog forces, for example, light. Right? There's a lot of research on photo- photonic computers. Uh, some of those research are not uh, still mature. But you know, at some point, you know, it is possible that the, there might be the next revolution in technology might be in hardware technologies for building other forms of computational technologies, which might lead to new forms of chat GPTs in turn. Oh, so the, you, were, you said quantum, didn't you say quantum? I did. Okay, so the, this, yeah. What was the phrase you said? Quantum what? Quantum, uh, I said quantum computers. I also said... Uh, Anyway, I you, you can also view the basic block of computation as more like computational substrate, which is basically you know, what is the basically the building block of your computation. Yeah. Currently, the building block of our computation is a transistor, just a switch that turns on and off. It's binary, and then different oh technologies. Gosh. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah. All right, you just completely blown my mind, Daniel. I uh, this is just <laughs> this is so. I feel like almost. Like you're just scratching the surface. And I wonder if this is what people felt like when the computers, small computers were invented, you know, back in the right. whatever, the late 80s, when I, w- I was trained on a prime or the VAX computer, big mainframes entering data. <laughs> and I would lay my printouts. It was on a dot matrix printer with a little holes on the end of this big paper and I would lay the data out from one end of the computer lab to the other and the second version because I double entered my data and I had a ruler and I would check the data to make sure I had data done my data entry properly from the whole length of the computer lab. That's where I was. I feel like one of these, like some kind of Cro-Magnon person, like this is, are we at that level of looking at how I trained 30 years, 40 years ago to now, when you're saying this chat GPT and this, where we are with AI is, is kind of like the dot matrix version of matrix version or the, the VAX, the prime computer version of the current modern day. We're so early in this. It's certainly, we certainly are very early on this. This is just the beginning. I think uh, it's uh, maybe today we have ChatGPT and more recently maybe three four other chatbots. Uh, I, th- I think this is in in two years we are gonna have maybe hundreds of chatbots of this Whoa. scale. And then and then what's unclear is whether the future uh, in future we are are we aiming toward a future where we are gonna have one extremely large big model. Or we are going to have kind of it, kind of more like a democratic society where everyone has a chat GPT in their phones. I worry about the first scenario. I think there could be some repercussions there about have kind of power being concentrated in the hands of few. 
Dr. Kashabi. All right, this is what we need next. So ima- I'm, I'm imagining, all right, we're gonna we're gonna start a business, a company. Instead of going to the Google or Firefox or all these to look something up, how many times all of us during the course of a day have the thought, the question, the oh, I just need to, or oh, what's the again back to the the example you talked earlier of having if every person had their own chat GPT or thinking of that as a good assistant. Can you imagine if what I thought, my thoughts, would immediately send to my computer, Kim just thought about what was the name of the guy who composed that song back in da-da-da-da that had lyrics, something about everybody be happy. And all of a sudden on my screen, whatever that screen would be, the answer is that the thoughts, the questions right. that we have, that we don't have to physically type in something or find a browser that we're automatically, oh, I just kind of gave myself goosebumps because is that, is that evil? Are we entering, as you said, like this kind of, do we have to stop thinking? But then now I'm talking myself off this cliff because humans can be uniquely creative. Yes or no? Can these can these computational organisms be creative as we know creative? Uh, well, I, I think you touched upon many important points I here. I know, I know. I'm sorry, my brain uh, is nuts on that. <laughs> it's a very complex topic. It's hard to focus on one thing. Um, you, you, you talked about privacy. You also talked about uh, the future of these models and also creativity. Let's talk about creativity, I think, because we talked about that before. I'm actually not sure. I'm quite conflicted. I guess part of the human part of me really wants to think that we have something special that is, it will never be attainable by these models. Um, uh, But on the other hand, I'm not 100% sure, I must say. Um, So, okay, so, so. The human part wants humans to be quite unique, but let me tell you what the other parts, what the what the AI side of me is telling me. Yeah. Uh, well, humans are, after all, are also processing organisms that are good in mixing and matching a lot of patterns. A lot of our creative ideas, we call them creative, but in practice, they're usually just pattern recognitions. You know, you you knew yeah. how, you know, this creative idea because you had seen something similar. And right. all of a sudden, you see analogies between this case and that case, and you know, boom, you know. And, it, and yeah, it, just real quick, I think it's true that maybe we never really invent something. We just simply, as humans in our consciousness, remember something that Daniel Kashabi said, or exactly. some other methodology, or go to a different talk, or read a different paper, and go, "Ooh, I can plug and play that over here." So, is it truly right. ever any unique thought? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I think it's possible that these bottles. Given these observations, possible that these models are going to become so creative, I guess creative in quotes, that they're going to be very, very extremely helpful for for our lives in day to day life. They're going to be really good assistants. So I think this is going to be only helpful if you if you use them properly in in moving science and technologies forward, right? So we are going to. I think this can help us. Uh, create and invent faster. I think this is only a good thing. We just want to make sure that we put the right guardrails with respect to privacy, uh, with respect to autonomy, to make sure that they're at our service and not off at their service. Efficiencies, guardrails. So I love that, Dr. Kashabi. So I want to transition to 
putting my hat back on and trying to calm my brain down here a moment as a faculty development person, I see application in this space for busy faculty members and academic medicine around the world. Wow, wouldn't this be a wonder, wouldn't chat GPT be a wonderful tool to help me write those letters of recommendation that are very formulaic or like a template, but take time. Wouldn't this be great to help me start my notes? Wouldn't this be great to draft my manuscript to start putting down my specific aims on on the on the grant application to to writing um, a, a poem to our sons and daughters for their birthdays. So those kind of head starts to like putting my CV in the proper order or writing my own letter of, of promotion saying, hey, look at my CV. Can you start drafting a, a letter of promotion why I should be promoted? So those kinds of administrative I'm going to call this drudgery, even though some people's just heads exploded. Martin (laughs) Feeder. Martin Feeder, I'm talking to you, a former colleague from University of Chicago who just uh, retired, retired officially. I know scholarship is not drudgery, but certain components of it, the it's being the the administrative tasks, are just time-consuming tasks that I can see chat GPT getting us over the hump. Pause. Next paragraph, however, you know, where's the watermark, if you will, or the disclaimer or the guardrails that will prevent Kim Skorupski from submitting a manuscript to academic medicine that I didn't write at all, that ChatGPT wrote. So that is that right. the danger where you hear you read articles about college professors saying, I can no longer assign a writing assignment. Because the students say, I'm just going to chat GP, GPT it. I don't have to write it. So that to me is the 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 time-saving efficiency butting up against the um, plagiarism, dumbing us down that we're not going to think anymore, that Kim doesn't have to think where she's driving anymore. Kim doesn't have to remember her Aunt Cheryl's phone number. I don't have to remember anything because my computer does it for me. So what do you think on that? It's a lot. <laughs> so I, I wholeheartedly agree about the application. Um, let's talk about the, I guess we are switching gears to talk about the dangers now. Um, one, you mentioned, you mentioned plagiarism or unintended plagiarism. Uh, so one, one thing that I should add is that, um, it's the idea, the plagiarism issue or unintended plagiarism, uh, might, when writing grants, could it still happen today? I might think about an idea that someone else has written. You know, we write these concurrent proposals and papers that you realize, oh, they happen to be concurrent all the time. Uh, so, as as a as a as the AI uh, positive uh, technologist, I think these systems actually have the potential to reduce these kind of redundancies in our system. Right. So, imagine if there is a system that. You know, if I, if I have an assistant that is more omniscient than me in reading papers and the latest proposals, it might actually help me red flag if there are resembling papers and proposals that I haven't read because it's just there's so many things out there. Um, and I think that's that's I think I think there there could be some of the weakness can actually be turned into positivity here. Uh, on the issue of um, classroom education, I you mentioned that your colleague had difficulty. I guess 
uh, essays, college essays, for example. Right? So this is a real issue now. I agree. But I think this is only showing the weakness of our uh, education system. Uh, when I was a kid in our school, we used to they used to force us to learn how to multiply big numbers. I don't multiply big numbers anymore now. Like I don't need to do that, right? So we have calculators for that. And I suspect that writing tools such as ChatGPT, ChatGPT, they're gonna just they're just gonna be part of our daily life. We just need to rethink the way we approach education. Um, if if the goal is to teach critical thinking, uh, uh, let's find out alternative ways to incentivize critical thinking. You know, what if we provide a version of ChatGPT that with some random property gives you bad arguments and also good arguments. So the job of the students is to on the fly, come up, kind of pick and choose their best arguments among a mix of bad and good arguments, right? Uh, you, know, you don't have to teach grammar to students because uh, you know, <laughs> the system knows how to, well, it's good for kids to have the experience to become good speakers and good writers, but then but then, what's more difficult, I think, is the critical thinking. And I think we can still innovate in terms of education to teach those kind of aspects. Did I? Do you think? What do you think on that? Yeah, that that makes sense because you gave that great example of you know the calculators, and I'm thinking of my nieces and nephews. You know, my my sister is saying they don't even teach. Um, handwriting anymore like they don't teach uh, script what's it called script or you know they don't teach that anymore children i guess don't know how to do cursive cursive they don't cursive, know they yeah, don't know yeah. cursive writing and we kind of go oh no that's ridiculous that's absurd i can't believe it until i go to sign a greeting card from somebody and my hand I'm like, <laughs> what's wrong with me i used to have beautiful penmanship what happened because i i don't write anymore we don't write we right. type so rather than the handwriting, it should be on like keyboarding, the keyboarding skills. We just have adapted to new technology. My mom was so upset when our, her local grocery store got rid of a lot of cashiers and went to automatic check. I will never use one of those things. People are losing their jobs. This is ridiculous. And yet we pivoted. I mean, during COVID, people who the toll booth collectors all of a sudden disappeared and and I'm not minimizing the fact that people, that in the whole industries throughout history have disappeared. We've had to recalibrate and pivot. And I'm, I hope the toll booth collectors found other employment. But it has implications for, I guess, that's one line of tra track here. It, it has implications. This chat GPT and technologies have implications for that can be negative because now you're maybe, maybe putting people out of jobs who do whatever, who used to teach writing or pretend, um, you know, have whole departments of poetry uh, um, or creative writing. And yet it also forces us to, as you're saying, incentivize critical thinking and being even more creative in the classrooms, being more right. creative in our daily lives to say, okay, if this is a new reality, how are we going to adapt because we are humans, we are these this consciousness that always wants to um, invent and create. We we relish, we love exploring, and that's what scientists do in academic science. Like I'm that's you know, right. talking about a brain like yours, you love that discovery. So I don't know that we'll ever replace that while recognizing that there will be some people for whom that 
that um, the joy of thinking and processing and identifying ideas and having sparks come alive and putting on paper, there always be people who who enjoy that or who are in that space. But then there are other people who this technology would save them from some tasks that are um, inefficient and keep them from doing their passionate joys, creative hobbies, and the like. So I'm seeing both, like with any technology, imagine, the That's beauty right. and the the horror, the nightmare, the, the pros and the cons. And it's just That's right. another one of those things that is pushing us and pushing boundaries. And we always adapt, right? Don't we always adapt? That's right. Yeah, I agree with that. But just to add a little bit more human to um, human uh, element to this conversation, I so like you said, we are some jobs are going to be affected by this, and uh, hopefully, in grand scheme of things, that's going to be positive for the society. Although, I personally, I, I have a little sense of nostalgia with uh, cursive teaching. Um, I have to just grapple with the fact that we don't need to write with hand. Uh, yeah, some some jobs are going to be affected by this, but then it's also it's also our job as a society also think about how to help individuals and society to move to to the next uh, next set of jobs. Uh, it's, it's for us uh, in universities, for example, to be educators to move the to push the society move us to the next station. It's for the policymakers to come up with the uh, to invest in education and. Uh, equip the society so that uh, they can resist against all these uh, changes in the workforces. Um, I think university is going to play its role. The policymakers have to also be quite diligent about the education, especially public education, and uh, in these kind of uh, changes. And not just for kids, but also even adults. A lot of adults are changing their job. They have to change their jobs. So what are you going to do for those? I think I'm, I'm thinking this would be a great leveler in terms of equity and right. accessibility to information, just like when the cell phones came out. And now almost I don't think it's the facts or the, the statistics are 90 some 90 X percent of people in the world, um, even right. third world, if you call them third world, if that's even a thing anymore, countries, people who don't have access to resources and tools, cell phones are endemic. And so it's almost in a way a leveler that chat GPT may help with equity and providing tools and resources to people who may not have had certain advantages to education and access to, to resources and to fancy summer camps and, and mini med schools and being prepared for careers. This tool might help, um, might help again, just kind of get everybody at the same starting point and that's, removing that's right. some of those barriers, right? That's right. I think that's a good uh, optimistic way to look at it. Like and another way to kind of add on top of what you said, um, be uh, one one impact of these technologies is going to be that software engineering to some extent is going to be easier. Like you don't need to know know a lot of fancy syntax about Python. Because as soon as you type in English that I want to do this, it's going to generate the Python code that does it for you. In a way, maybe programming in the future is going to be just language communication with computers, you know, like natural language. You just say in English that I want to do this, and then 
that you know, it's going to be so readable. So a lot of technology, surprisingly, a lot of the impact is going to be on technology sector itself. Yeah, I mean, um, think about our, our our homes. I mean, that that we walking into our homes or driving home, turn on the light, Siri, whatever your name is, um, Alexa, get the casserole in the oven. I mean, I guess we're not quite to the point of little robots putting the casserole in the oven, but turn on the oven, turn on the light, feed the dog, right. you know, zap that robber who's taking my Amazon package off my front porch, whatever. We already are doing those things. So it just seems almost natural to go, Oh gosh, computer, make sure you add that reference to the paper I was working on earlier this afternoon or computer. Um, you know, don't, you know, not easy one. Remind me to do such and such where something would get plunked into my calendar, but help computer help me think about the connection between depressive symptomatology and, and morbidity. Right. Uh, that kind of stuff that'll go, oh, sure. And here's your lit search for you. And hey, I've already drafted your abstract for you. And here's a podium presentation you can noodle around <laughs> with. And That's then we right. just sit there like big blobs in the in the movie. What was the little movie about the little the little guy who was doing garbage on the planet by himself? Oh. Uh, Wally. Wally. Remember little <laughs> Wally? So we are going to be those people in the pods who are just right. never going to have to move. We're just going to be... Yeah. Big blobs who just think things that think right. things happen, and oh boy. Yeah. So we talked about positive things. Let's let me just uh, pile up a bunch of negative things because okay. I think these I'll are important. Up. So you talked about Wally. This is a really good, actually, timely example. So uh, there is increasingly more research on uh, chat GPTs that have eyes, chat GPTs that have ears. They can see you. They can, in a way, they're grounding their language generation in the context it could be visual context it could be auditory context uh you know, so you know so you think about these chat gpts i uh, think of wallies you know as basically moving chat gpts that are on the streets let's say you know let's like it's very um it's a positive application right chat these wallies that are walking on the street and these models have the ability to continually as they absorb more information they're getting better and better Right, so we are going to have these really positive applications that you, these systems that are just going to collect all the garbages on the street, or as soon as you know, let's say someone trips and falls on the ground, they'll just going to go towards and help them pick them up. But then, um, but then, what about privacy? You know, these models are going to listen to you to any conversation that you have on the street. What's the role of privacy in that society? What if you're on the phone talking with your mom and? On and so on. So, well, what's going to happen to that? That you know, like they're going to hear you all the time. I think these are going to be, or but, but, they're going to see you. They hear us all the time anyway, right? Because I can't go to Amazon.com or I can't go on any interweb without it saying, "Hey Kim, here are those bomba socks you're looking for. They're on sale. They're already listening and watching, and coding our keystrokes." Yeah, that's true. I, 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 I think. That, that, that's that's true. Um, many of us, when uh, when we signed up on Amazon, we uh, agreed to their to their terms. Um, but then I don't know I don't know uh, what terms uh, I'm signing when 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 let's say the city of Baltimore is gonna create their own Wally walking around on the streets, right? So what what kind of private privacy issues am I compromising here? Uh, these these it could it could be a good thing it could also be misused right if there's a system that is watching me all the time 
They know what kind of clothes I'm wearing. They know where I'm going all the time. They know where, where I am exactly all the time. I mean, it could be a good thing and bad thing because maybe the security is going to increase in society because we will know where every person is at every moment. Maybe the streets are going to be very clean. But then I'm sure there there's also going to be people who are going to be quite uncomfortable about this kind of uh, oversight. And, and oversight, you make yeah. me think of another, the annoyance, daily household annoyance of autocorrect. So what if, you know, you can imagine like a, trying to engage with my little Wally chat GPT guy and he keeps telling me to do, oh, the word you want is this. And I'm like, no, you know, when you're typing on your cell phone and your cell phone automatically corrects what the word you're trying to put in and you have to know, I meant to say, honestly, that word, but it doesn't know that word. So it's key. It's trying to anticipate the word and it won't let me. So I can imagine wanting yeah. to like blow up little Wally when he keeps trying to force me to do, to say, or write, or apply for this, or put that in the paper, or write that in the letter, and then take it to a personal level. Um, he's engaged my health that morning when I he took my temperature. He did a urinalysis. You know, he looked at my oral hygiene and said, no, you can't have that yogurt this morning. And I'm like, I want the yogurt. You will not have the yogurt. But I want the yogurt. You can't have I, the yogurt. <laughs> that's a good example. Uh, so I have a few thoughts there. Uh, I think at this point, uh, these issues happen because the technology is not good. We just, the systems just are just so brittle that they, they, they break, you know, they, they, they don't, they just, they're, they genuinely don't know how to interpret your intentions and your needs. And, you know, they break, you know, they, they don't understand your intentions. There is a doomsday scenario that I guess we can call this a more like kind of deceptive AI, malicious AI that is so omniscient. And then maybe you tell we the system. Insert, note, note, to Ed, note to Casey Callan and the producer of the Faculty Factory podcast, insert song about Decepticon. Start playing Decepticon music here. Hey, listeners, it's Casey. Just checking in to let Kim and everyone else know we don't have the rights to use that music. But uh, back to the conversation. All right, continue, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so this deceptive AI that. It, it exactly, it understands exactly what you're asking, but it is so evil that it decides to act against your will. Uh, so this is, you know, this is kind of uh, a concern that is raised by a lot of... Uh, yeah, Will Smith art- raised it. Will Smith raised it in the movie. Right. I saw the movie, I, Robot. <laughs> <laughs> by artificial intelligence, skeptics. And uh, so I think... I, so I, I suppose in theory this might be possible. I don't see it becoming a possibility. At least what we know is that the current technology that we have, based on what we understand, the technology is quite reactive. It's it's acting to what you say. You are basically you are the boss, and this technology is your servant. It's gonna act to what you're saying. If if it misunderstands your intention, it might fall apart. It might break. Uh, in the same way that uh, when I ask, uh, uh, let's say, I don't have a kid, but uh, if I had a kid, if I ask them, uh, hey, bring me something, they might misunderstand, bring me something else. It's not like they're evil and doing it. It's just they don't understand. In the same way, our technology might fail, but at least I don't see a technology where, you know, where yeah, we scale it up and all of a sudden the technology understands that. 
and genuinely decides to do something else. I don't see this evil nature in the technology. Main, and in a way, we can say that this technology does not have autonomy. It has, it has some level of intelligence. As long as I ask and articulate my needs, it is not an individual with its own autonomy. I think that's that's my response to those kind of concerns. However, I'll just add one big concern that I have. This might be my biggest concern about the technologies, uh, they, they, and that that is about misinformation. The cost of misinformation is getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, maybe in 2016 election, uh, you know, these uh, foreign bad actors they had to hire 2,000 writers to spread misinformation in social media, Facebook, and so on to impact our election. But they don't need to hire anyone now. All that they need is just two programmers to just generate misinformation through their chat GPT system and just continue spreading it. And then um, even us, when we write our reports, we are using these. Our human, your humans every day, they are getting exposed to things that are written as a mix of chat GPT and human written text. And I suspect that uh, as, as humans on their daily life, they get more exposure to instances of kind of fake generated documents that are you know, written by the generative AI models. People are just going to become more uh, prone to just labeling everything as, hey, this is fake. This is computer. Suspicious. Yeah, the suspicion yeah. goes through the roof. And then how can you ever truly. Exactly. What's yeah. going to be like, yeah, the, 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 the misinformation and deep fake. Could we actually have fake scientists submitting fake grant applications to do fake science and then write fake articles? <laughs> And teach uh, yeah. fake students, and there's this whole <laughs> make-believe, deep-fake world taking money and generating false data and fake science. Yeah. I'm, and then I'm who, less, whoever believes any of the science, then. Right. Um, I'm a little less concerned about that fake science. I think my biggest concern is on the societal level where you – in science, at least we have peer reviewers. You have, like, you rely on – Kimberly's of the world to review, they have expertise, they've dedicated their life. But then society, average humans, they just, you know, they're bombarded by all sorts of media outlets. And then if they're suspicious to everything, what are they going to believe, right? They're going to believe what is aligned with their existing uh, biases or their existing beliefs. And that's just going to result in more and more social divide. And we already know that we are a divided society, right? This is going to get, if this gets worse, this is quite concerning for the future of our democracy. This, to me, speaks to the import importance of having committees at school, different functional unit levels, to be thinking about this and to be aware of it, to be watching, participating in it, to be able to cut some of this stuff off at the pass and monitoring it. And you said something really important about peer review is, gosh, as long as we hold fast to the academic, you know, that foundation of our academic freedom, which funnels through peer review, we should be good, fingers crossed, unless there gets to be some kind of fake journal out there with fake peer review. And then that's <laughs> another deep fake of all, all her, yeah, her papers are written in, in you know, who knows what kind of journal with some fake chat GT, GPT reviewers. So again, it's all that level of scrutiny. It has to go, we'll have to, it's the trust, but verify, right? We're going to have to be verifying right. everything. Yeah. I think, I think in science, I'm 
Uh, well, it's not efficient, but we have systems in place to prevent those. Um, but in society, in a way, we, the first, the, you know, the really the most important principles in our society is free speech, right? And we, we are, we take pride in that. We are, this is what makes the society quite unique. Is, and, and then in this society, um, we, we, we just didn't, uh, we don't have any mechanisms for, uh, for good reasons. We don't have any mechanisms for, for filtering ideas. Uh, but then uh, now, how are we going to grapple with this uh, new age of information bombarding us? Uh, just a few years ago, we thought that we, we are being bombarded by information. Now that we have this chat GPT, how is that going to change? That that feels like a very uh, concerning territory to me. Well, we, we could, there was thought years ago that we'd never do the human genome, right? The human genome project came out and boom, we figured it all out, right? Remember that right. was like, that thought that was an unattainable, but again, the abundant data and you're saying 175 billion parameters, this is like nothing now. I mean, there, there's unlimited data that can be fed into these models. Yeah. But they're constantly seeking way more efficiently than us in these nanoseconds to figure this stuff out. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the scaling is just going to, I think the scaling is just going to continue. This is really the tip of the iceberg. We will continue to not only increase the size of the models, we're going to continue increasing the amounts of data, add different modalities. We talked about chat activities with eyes and ears. Um, we are going to see cool applications, but then, but then what happens to misinformation, privacy, what happens to uh, other malicious users? Like think of a scenario where a malicious actor is injecting uh, is injecting data to some dark corner of the internet and which gets picked up by these models. And, and, and then let's say it's someone in Google who's building, someone in OpenAI who's building ChatGPT, they cannot read all the text on the web. They're just going to train on the whole bulk of the data, right? From their perspective, more is better. More data? Sure, I'm going to train on it. But then this malicious actor is going to inject some data there. The model is going to pick it up and then someone's going to query back, back. it. Garbage in, garbage out. So we could purposely feed in junk that's to right. mess with the models. Exactly. But then what's even more scary is that somehow this, the, so the model is going to see that garbage. So it's going to generate garbage. But then some of the generated garbage is going to go to the internet itself to feed into future models. So there's going to be this feedback the loop feedback of garbage. Loop. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Right. So, Stop. Fix it. What are you going to do? Fix it. <laughs> Dr. Daniel Kashabi, we have, I cannot believe we talked over an hour. I, when we first started, I said, oh, Daniel, we can talk for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. No big deal. Here we are. You know what? You have to come back because you said something a few minutes ago that I wrote down and underlined technology. You said technology is my servant. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you what, there are thousands and thousands of clinical faculty members out there going, oh, no, no way. They are it, they are chained to technology. They feel like they are the servants to technology because they cannot do their jobs without having to clickety, clickety, click, 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 click all the live long day. And that the overproduction, over manufacturing of these tools to capture data in the clinic space has them completely hamstrung they're just like little mini robots. The faculty are like little mini robots clicking, 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 clicking. And so that inefficiency is what 
those burdens just wear them down. It's torturous. And I'm thinking, I can't help but think that NLP, natural language processing, couldn't get us into the smart room concept where you walk in and Wally is just kind of hanging out in the medical room, in the examination room, and the whole room's a smart <laughs> room. And it's saying, I recognize this pattern of this dialogue. I recognize, and they know, they know some parameters. They, oh, Kim Skorupski, the way she's talking, the way Daniel's diagnosing her, here's the, here's what's going to play forward. So I I think there, I want to talk to you at some point in the future about a couple more things. And the one is that the technology is my servant. How do we kind of... um tear that apart or make better sense of that when a lot of faculty I would think would say no it's technology is killing me not to mention the fact <laughs> on a personal level social social media and all the distractions that we allow technology to interfere with us so I think we got to be really um conscious of the the forces technology's forces and then our 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 personally are proactively engaging with technology that are impeding our progress. So I think there's just so many things. Yeah. I, uh, there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, <laughs> hopefully another time. Oh, Dr. Kashabi, everybody, isn't he brilliant? I told you, I told you this is going to be a great episode. Um, Thank you. You're too you want to reach Dr. Daniel Kashabi or Danielle Kachabi. That's right. That was better. <laughs> I got so excited. So Daniel K, D-A-N-I-E-L-K at C-S dot J-H-U dot E-D-U, right? That's right. Daniel K at C-S dot J-H-U dot E-D-U. Or go to the go to facultyfactory.org. You'll see the whole write-up on Daniel and share this episode. And we're going to get Daniel back, right? Oh, yes, we are. Thank you so much, Daniel. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the part. Why don't you say some parting thought um, and then you can... Wave us out of here. I, I think I think um, we are at an exciting era. There are these emerging technologies. This means emerging opportunities for us that is going to impact uh, many of the fields that uh, interface any sort of technology. We talked about inefficiencies in clinic rooms. I'm really excited to now be in Hopkins and have the opportunity to collaborate with many brilliant colleagues. I'm looking forward to those. And I think that we have to be extremely diligent in this era of changes to make sure that this technology serves us well and prevents any uh, misuses and any harms before any of that goes to actual downstream usages. So I'm looking forward to those uh, collaborations with my colleagues. Thank you so much. Talk to you guys next time. Come back to the Faculty Factory. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.